Welcome to Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Gladesville, where we look in more depth at the passages that we uh, explored on Sunday. I'm Dave. I'm Seb. And I'm Mandy. On Sunday, we looked at Genesis chapter 37. Dave preached for us and we looked at that somewhat familiar story of Joseph um, and his brothers and the coat that his father had given him. And while we looked at that, we really focused a bit more on not just what that story tells us there, but how it actually helps us to reflect on what it looks like for us in the face of God's grace and mercy to be faced with our own sinfulness and the bitterness and envy that often comes from within. Dave, thanks so much for opening God's Word for us. It was uh, my pleasure. So today what I thought we'd have a look at is we're going to uh, think a bit more, a little bit about envy and come up with some perhaps some pastoral reflections on how to deal with envy if it's something that you're wrestling with. We're going to answer some questions that were sent through uh, yesterday and then we're also going to explore two chapters of the Bible, one from last week's section and one from uh, that we were also going to be looking at today, chapters 34 and chapter 38, that seem like they're side stories and go, well, are they really? How do they help us understand the story of Genesis? So that's where we're going to go today. So envy, do you guys have any thoughts as we start thinking about how to overcome envy? It just strikes me in this story um, that the brothers, I mean, what is it that they're envious of? They're, they're envious of their father's love, mm. um, that, that Jacob loves Joseph more than them. And so there's a lack that they want and it, you know, it becomes something small that leads very quickly to you know, a sin as great as desiring to murder their own brother. Mm. Um, and it strikes, as Christians, as we read the story as well, can't help but sort of think about our own hearts and the way that we... Us, you know, believe the lie that we're empty mm. and look elsewhere f- to be filled up, and yet all the time, what the gospel reminds us is is to actually know we're, we're loved, mm. we're full. The Father's love is is we, we're already been filled up with the measure of Christ's love towards us, and uh, and just that that is the ultimate remedy for mm. for envy. Easier yeah. said than done, but yeah, and that that actually that whole point of the way that we do that and looking at others, it reminds me of um, something that that I've read. Um, so there's a book uh, by Sophie DeWitt, which is called Compared to Her. Uh, so it is a book that's written, directed at women, but I think the point remains and it picks up the whole idea that often what we're doing is that instead of being satisfied with the gifts that God has given us and recognising them, we can easily look at someone else. And now when we're doing that, we're only ever looking at the outward presentation of what they've got. And so people tend to display their best selves on the outside. And so we look at that and we compare ourselves to them and what they've got on the outside and go, that's so much better than what I've got. And that actually becomes the soil for us that then allows us to grow bitterness and envy for them because we look at what they've got and we go, we don't have that. And I want what she's got. And Mm. then I'm completely dissatisfied with what I've got. And it reminds me of like, James often talks about this and that whole like, do not harbour bitterness and envy in your heart. And you kind of go, oh, what is it that I'm harbouring in my heart? Am I actually looking towards God's goodness and his gifts that he has given me and being thankful for them? Or am I just comparing myself to someone else and instead actually like harbouring that and harbouring, well, I want what they've got instead of 
as you've said, being overwhelmed by the love that God has actually given us. Mm. And it's one of those, it's fairly subtle sin mm. in one sense. Like, you know, I mean, does anyone know that you have envy? Mm. Um, and yet it, in you know, it's a... It's a not s- visible, is it, unless no. it gets to the whole, you know, just right. throwing someone down a well <laughs> stage. But, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet it comes up every time you interact with someone mm. or you're in a new setting or, you know. Yeah. 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 I think one of the things as you were talking, Seb, that uh, I was... Reflecting on is there's an interesting bit in Romans nine to eleven where where Paul actually wants people to envy, and and because the very thing that you were saying because we there's no need to envy because we have the Father's love mm. in a sense. Uh, Paul wants those of his own people who have not embraced the gospel envy the to be envious because the Gentiles are getting what should be theirs, mm. and so he says if I'm I'm kind of hoping against hope that my people will be envious about what is this gospel that even the Gentiles are now being excluded, included mm. in mm. and and what about me? That should be mine. And so he wants to provoke mm. envy. So I, I thought I might um, actually go and talk about a couple of things we can do to deal with envy. First of all, there's some a couple of points of corrective thinking and then what do you pray for? First of all, with corrective thinking, it's just important to detect it mm. and, and to, and to recognise that it's not a healthy thing. Mm. To, to have enough of a let let the scripture do what it's meant to do and work as a window into your soul and then go, oh, I'm seeing a bitter root of envy getting in there. Don't hold on to it like it's precious. Don't indulge it or, or just sit in it. Spot it early and go, oh, I need to deal with this. Second thing, and this is what we've already spoken about a bit, remind yourself of the big picture. You've got every spiritual blessing in Christ and things like health, wealth and physical attractiveness and talent and the other things that we might envy, they're going to die. That They are actually fleeting. They mm. don't actually hold value in eternity. And 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 so you, you should never envy what the, an unbeliever. An unbeliever could be swanning around on Sydney Harbour in a motor yacht, living at Point Piper and eating whatever. Do not – you would not switch places for them for one second because they don't know Jesus and you do. Um, they do not have an eternity – uh, with him to look forward to, you do, and the blink and, and the 50, 70 years is going to be a blink of an eye compared to that. Um, so, you know, uh, remind yourselves of the security you have in Christ and the insecurity of the world that doesn't have him and, and the shallowness of things that are here today and are gone tomorrow. They're not worth envying. Mm. I guess I'd also say the correct you're thinking if you, if, if, what if it's a believer that you're envious of? Mm. Remember who they are. And so a corrective bit of thinking that just says, this is my brother or sister in Christ. Why would I, in, in, in a, because of a jealousy, want bad for them? Mm. I, I should actually, I, I want my brothers and sisters to flourish. And I know I don't feel like that right now, but that is who they are. Come on, mm. self, think rightly about this. So there's some corrective thinking there. And also we must make sure that we don't neglect to take the opportunity to go, it is a secret sin and secret sins are often the easiest ones to hold on to and so keep keep for longer. So don't let it stay secret. It's, you know, everyone struggles with sin. Yours is envy and jealousy. Well, just like you might share other aspects of sin, sin with a with a brother or sister in Christ, so they can pray for you and follow you up on it. Say, hey, I struggle. I think a little bit with envy. Um, ask me how I'm going on it. So, so there's some corrective thinking that you could do. Second thing would be that what do you pray for if you're battling with it? Because it's a matter of the heart, and um, external things can't get and twist you and, and fix your heart up. You, you need 
God's spirit to work within you and to and to transform your heart to be gracious and not envious. So um, a couple of things on that is I'd say I wouldn't mind betting that most people who really battle with envy don't have thanksgiving seeded through their prayers. Um, are you praying with thanksgiving regularly? Is your or is your prayer life dominated by coming before God with all the things that you that he, you need from Him because you feel you don't have them? Now I don't want to say don't pray for those things. We should pray for those things. They're actually good to pray for them. But if we pray for them and we neglect to do it with thanksgiving, then we have a, a distorted, I guess, an unbalanced prayer life that is failing to see things that God wants us to see, and that is how he is good to us, to actually regularly reflect back to him our recognition of the goodness of the gospel and his love for us that we should be doing it. Seed your prayers with thanksgiving, and you'll find that the things of this world will grow strangely dim Mm -hmm. um, because you're continually reminded and reminding yourself, even as you pray to God about it, of how good he's been. Um, and the, the second tip for prayer is pray in the opposite direction for envy. This is a thing to do in the moment. That is, um, you're, you're seeing someone that you envy or whatever it's like that, pray for them then and there and pray in the opposite direction of envy. Ask God to bless whoever they are. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to stay envious when you're actually asking God to give them more, um, but ask him to show his good kindness to them. You know, um, this is part of how we can love our enemies as well. You know, pray that God will be kind to them. If they're unbelievers, maybe people you're seeing in the media or just people you see around you and your neighbours and whatever, well, they're missing something that you have. So actively pray in there and there. They go, I know they've got all of this, Lord, but if only they saw how shallow that is and how good it is to know you. Pray graciously and you will find that the space for envy gets constricted. Um, And in fact, you can... There is a, a generosity and joy that you're actually feeling into your heart and calling upon God to do um, that will help you overcome uh, any senses of, of envy that you've got. Mm. Um, there were a couple of questions that came through. Um, what was the? Someone read uh, the first question. It's quite a good one. It's on favoritism. Yeah. Do you want to read that for us, man? So the first question says: So you said that God has no favorites. How is this true? God's chosen people and predestined them. We see that certain characters have favour and are blessed and others are cursed. Okay, now I've got to say this was a a good question and it's something that I was trying to ponder because I did actually have a section on favouritism in there that I edited out for time reasons. But um, So I'm glad it's come up because, you see, grace and election on the face of it can appear, can't they, to be expressions of favouritism. But first of all, we've got to go this. The Bible is super explicit that whatever favoritism is, God does not show it. So Acts 10.34, Romans 2.11, Galatians 2.6, Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 3.23 say in as many words, God does not show favoritism. Mm. Okay, so that's explicit. You couldn't get more explicit than than being put so plainly as that. So then... God doesn't show it, but those things sound like they might be it. Mm. So what is favoritism? I'm going to get Seb to read a couple of verses out for in a minute, but but let me define it for you. Favoritism is a prejudice in the positive. Right? So it's 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 a form of judging by appearances, not negatively, oh you're a scumbag, um, but because I don't like the look of you, but positively, right? So it's looking upon someone favorably at the expense 
of justice towards others. They get away with things they shouldn't and that others don't because you're playing favourites with them. Um, Or others get neglected because you're lavishing all of your attention on your favourite and you're forgetting about someone that you also have responsibility towards. And I think we might have seen a little bit of that in the in the Joseph and, and his brothers um, from Jacob's point of view. And sometimes it's because of what the benefits are. It's, it's selfish because if I show favouritism to that wealthy person who walks into my church, then I might benefit from that or something. Um, but sometimes it can actually be an unfortunate byproduct, as I think it is in Genesis 37, of good affections, like like having a soft spot for the son born to you when you're born to you in your old age, or even by pity, because sometimes favoritism is explicitly towards the poor. Um, so, do you want to read us from a couple of passages in the Old Testament, Seb? Sure. This one's from Exodus twenty-three, verse two: Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Is that? Do not show favoritism to a poor person. When James <laughs> talks about it, he's saying the opposite. He's yeah. saying you're showing favoritism for the rich at the expense of the poor. Mm. But but when it first gets mentioned in the law, it's that you might show favoritism to oh, you're a poor person, I'll just let you get off. But actually not then act justly. Mm. So um, what about the uh, second passage? And from Leviticus 19 verse 15, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbour fairly. So, again, that now flips it on the other side that you're now showing not you not show favoritism to the great. But the point is, it's about making accurate judgments mm-hmm. and being being uh, even handed in your um, in your discretions. I guess you could say. So then, if that's what favoritism is, it's a prejudice that's in the positive. Um, how is grace and election not God showing favoritism? And the answer to this is because God's grace does not come at the expense of his justice. Uh, If it was God saying, you know what, because I've just decided to love you, so just don't worry about the whole sin thing. Oh, oh, I'm going to send all of them to hell. But don't you, you you don't worry because I don't know. There's something about you, this twinkle in your eye that I kind of like. Yeah, that's not the way grace works. Um, God's election and grace do not involve at any point the sweeping of sin under the carpet or pretending it never happened. Every single person who sins will be held to account for every single one of those sins. Every last sin gets paid for and punished either by the person themselves or in Christ at the cross. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get swept under the carpet and so therefore it's it's not a prejudice it is not it is not an ignoring of fault it is not a dismissing of it it because it is actually paying for it so that's the difference between grace and favoritism guilt is declared but atonement has been made and so that's the difference between favoritism a prejudicial letting off and grace which is a letting off by the because your punishment has been paid in full at the cross, uh, justice has been served. So that's the difference. So, but it's a it's a very helpful question. Um, now there was a second question. So the second question is: Do we see any redeeming factors from Judah in him sending his brother off to slavery when the rest wanted to kill or abandon him, or is Judah just as bad as the rest of them? Interesting. 
hold that question because we're going to address it when we look at chapter 38. So the rest of what we want to talk about in the podcast um, this week is what we're calling Genesis side stories. And we're calling them side stories because they seem they're not they don't seem to be super significant in the main part of the narrative. They seem to be off to the side a little bit. And so the question sort of comes up and, and they're also pretty confronting stories. And so we're, we're going to have a look at them. This is chapter 34 and, and, and chapter 38. But it's important we acknowledge a few things, isn't it, Seb, really? Yeah, so they're definitely, I mean, we're dealing with life outside the garden in Genesis and, and the two chapters that we're going to look at are not commonly preached on or, or taught on. So it's a great opportunity for us to, you know, we, I think we're going to read out at least chapter 34 and, and speak quite extensively on, on 38 as well. But um, but the theme, probably warning just to say, is that there's some triggers in there that actually if you pastorally have uh, had any background with rape or sexual assault or just uh, then these these are stories that are going to hit a raw spot. And so want to give fair warning before we read them and discuss them that um, uh, that this is the, the less comfortable part of Genesis that speaks to the world we live in mm. and is important to um, to teach on. And yet at the same time, want to acknowledge that everyone comes to stories like these with different personal backgrounds too. Sometimes people are being hit by the, 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 the nasty end of this mm. very stuff that it describes. And, mm. and we just want to acknowledge that that may be well the case in, in some of our listeners. Mm. So let's read... Chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dina's father and brothers, Let me find favour in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to him, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would disgrace us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughter and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honoured of all his father's family, lost no time in doing what they said 
because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised, as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property and all of their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle among us. All the men went out to the city gate, agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Even as you're reading that, Mandy, you're going, that's, that is a confronting story. There's, there's very, very little that's good in that. You've got uh, the, the rape in the first place, horrific. It's, and, and it's like, oh, he loves her though. Like that's an, like <laughs> a that's justification an excuse, or yeah. an excuse. Um, and the, just the, uh, the, the, the deceit that goes on there, the, the, um, uh, the, the, the scheming to do it. Uh, uh, Jacob doesn't come out looking good either, does he? No. Because he, he just, it's like he's, he wanted to wait for the guys to come in from the fields. He, he's not got a whole lot of confidence about his safety, does he, there? Um, for a guy who goes, oh, God's promised me this and he's given 20 years of evidence about that he's going to give it to me. He doesn't. He just doesn't even seem to mourn what's happened to Dinah. Well, that's I mean, true as well. It's like, you know, is Dinah you, his daughter? That's right. Yeah. And maybe that's the hint at the beginning that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had born mm. to Jacob, that that it's it's got that theme of, you know, it's the, the less favoured wife and the less favoured Maybe in contrast child. to yes. Joseph, you know. Yeah. And then even, even the brothers, you kind of, there's the one sort of slight redemption that you have is that you love that they want to defend their sister's honour. But just the way they do it is just, you know, using the sign of like God's covenant and what would set mm. them apart as his people, using that as actually the thing to disable them so that they could then It's an offence to circumcision, people. isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah, you just scratch your head. And yet you're seeing Jacob like this um, theme in Jacob's life that trouble follows him <laughs> and, and, and the one who is the... The one who grasps at the foot and and has just gone through all these episodes of you know, deceiving his own father Isaac and then being going through the trickster episodes with Laban and here he is at the end of this episode saying to his two sons, "You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the people living in this land." There's this idea where Jacob really distress follows him 
and yeah. um, and here it's his sons who have used deceit to to bring it about as well. Struggles so. with God yeah. and man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like his name and Israel too, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. I think we will touch upon this later, but it does stand out in this story that we hear nothing from Dinah herself. No. No. So that you know we hear of this. It all happened to all, her. It mm. it all happens to her, but we we actually we don't hear from her. Don't hear um, a voice. And yeah. I think that will yeah. stand in contrast to what Something we'll look we're gonna later. look at a bit later. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty it's a pretty ugly story. And again, the the to see it has to be seen the over the topness of what Simeon and Levi do, right? Mm. So it's like you get a crime and that crime, yes, should be punished. But what they do is multiply the crime a hundred times over. Uh, it, it is not unreasonable to read into them taking the the little ones and the and the women of the town for themselves to to insert in that perhaps maltreatment of their own, and so th- this is it is it is Lamech like, which is one of the reasons I brought it mm. up yesterday, that that he he ta- they take revenge by um, doubling down on it and 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 tripling far far more than that they murder a whole town mm. it's it's pretty graphic but what we want to think through is is it a side story what's it doing in genesis and so again when we're trying to answer that question why on earth is this here we've got to go what's the key question is that is how does this impact the promise to abraham how does this event speak into it is there anything that's put in jeopardy is there anything that's not understood because that's the main theme really about how God is going to bring blessing and all of those sorts of things um, and I only bless the nations right mm-hmm. but how does that intersect with this story and I think there is a, a, a bit we can cover there um, so one of the questions might be uh, how did they get the land so you might remember back in the day Abraham had you know helped out the um, the 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 um, cities in the plain um, to to capture a lot back and 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 a lot of their things as well. And the king of Sodom offers to give him a whole lot of money and things like that. And Abraham says, "I'm not going to take anything that comes from your hand because it was the Lord that had promised him the land." Um, and you see in this incident uh, a bit of a, a of a telling where it sounds like there's a trade going on, such that the residents of Shechem are going to they'll give them the land. Mm-hmm. Right, as long as you give us Dinah or Dina, um, we'll give you our our women. You'll you'll give us your women. We'll intermarry. We will um, we will have what's theirs. You will have what's ours. And we and then combined they become the people of God, and that is a specific. That is a direct challenge to to the promises of how that God is going to give them the land. Mm-hmm. And also we also know from I think is it is it chapter fifteen or chapter seventeen? I sometimes get them mixed up. But but where the, the pro it's fifteen, where God says it's you're going to get it after the sojourn to Egypt. Mm-hmm. After four hundred years you're going to return and then the land will be given. So we know we've been told that that's how the land's going to come to them. Whereas this is a no but you can have it now sort of danger by by getting it from the from the Shechemites, um, and so it sort of speaks to that: will that happen or not? Uh, what what else do you think is um, helpful to see there in terms of how it how it relates to the promise to Abraham? 
I guess even the fact that it is a, it's the Canaanites that take her and so even the, the whole idea of kind of the one people idea, they were speci- the Israelites were specifically told not to intermarry yeah. with the other people who were there. So there's that kind of that's going on in that. Yeah, a lot of the language does seem to uh, intersect with things that later texts, including in the Pentateuch and, in, in, you know, in – in Deuteronomy and things like that, explicitly they're told not to do. And it's almost like you get that language brought earlier um, in this situation where this is a live option where all of the things they're told later you're not meant to do are on the table here. Um, so there's a there's a, a, a tone that says this shouldn't happen. Mm. Yeah. And then linking back to the promise, it it's yet another threat to the promise being fulfilled. So the way that... I mean, Jacob's big concern at the end is we are few in number and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So there is this sense in which his sons, you know, have his sons actually just provoked the destroying of Jacob's whole household, mm-hmm. um, which is just yet another kind of uh, tension rising point in the, the broader narrative. You've had famines, you've had um, not being able to, childlessness, you've had various challenges to the promise being fulfilled uh, and and here is another one. And so it's, and it's the second one in the passage. Yes. It's, it's like one promise gets snuffed out at the sword of Simeon and Levi. I Okay, well, uh, looks like we're not going to marry the Shechemites because <laughs> they're all dead. Um, but then, as you said, then there's the, yeah, but what's the rest of the Canaanites going to do when they hear about it? Is yes. that going to make a threat to the promise? And so on and one hand you can see there's a providence over it, but it is it, there there is... Wickedness and un, and mm. lack of faith in in the middle of it as well, and it's uh, it's the beginning of what we'll see later in Genesis as well. That that um, we're getting the backstory for the blessing that Jacob will give to his sons, and why his blessing won't pass to Simeon and Levi in the same way as well. Yep, yep. So this is one of those file this away mm. for when we get to the list of of who gets what promise. Um, what were you going to say, Maddie? I was just thinking as we look at this story in its totality um, and particularly when we look at the way that um, Shechem acted there, like, you know, he saw her and he took her and he raped her, you just get the picture of, like, the ripples of sin that continue. So right back from Genesis 3, we actually saw the, the impact of, of sin on the world and the way that it messes up relationships and people then just act upon it and things get worse and worse and worse. And we just see here all of the impacts of that in the way that people are relating to each other and the way that, like, this just should never happen. Mm, mm. This is not the world that God created humanity to live in. Yeah, the, te- the testimony, as I kind of um, said a bit yesterday as well, that, that Genesis says this is a world that needs redeeming. And, and all, all the way through while the, the plan is actually being worked out that's going to lead to redemption, you're being reminded of the need for it and mm. why it can't happen on our own strength. I think the other thing to, to know just as a, a flag for close readers of Genesis is watch for that expression of seeing and taking mm. because that has turned up multiple times up because, that, of course, that's what happens in the garden, seeing the fruit, taking it. Um, and then you've got Lot who sees the land of the plain and he wants to take it. And so you've got the seeing, taking, seeing, taking, and it is almost never, I'm, I say almost because I don't know conclusively, but I would be fairly confident that it is never a, a positive preface. Mm. And so again, when, when we're introduced to that he saw and he took, boom, it just brings Eden back into mm. the story and going, yes, this is what people do. Mm. 
They do it with greed. They do it with lust. They do it with land. They do it with um, a, a lack of faith, wanting to grasp promises before they're, they're realised and all of that sort of stuff. So we see that flowing out. We also see um, in the last line of it, should he have treated our our sister as a prostitute that's setting the scene for what we're about to have a look at in chapter 38 and the other thing is is that maybe it tells you why when jacob takes them back to bethel straight after this is the account where they go down to bethel and they build an altar and why he says to them all that they need to purify themselves this is the first time that purifying yourself before a sacrifice actually comes up in the bible this is the first time when that happens and it's perhaps not surprising that it happens when his son's hands are covered in blood mm. and his his wives have been sitting on on, um, on their household gods, which presumably he was actually okay with, but now knows he mustn't be. So we've got that sort of closing off there. Mm. Okay, so if you've got your growth group books in, you'll know that 37 and 38 is what's set for this week and going, well, what about 38? Well, that's what we're going to come to now. So I'm going to read to you Genesis 38, um, alternate version. Okay. And it came to pass at this time that Judah went down from with his brothers and turned aside as far as a man of Adulam, and his name was Hera. And Judah saw there the daughter of a Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and came to her. And she conceived and she bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she added again, and bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Now he was in, Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And it came to pass that Ur, firstborn of Judah, was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and Yahweh put him to death. And Judah said to Onan, Come to the wife of your brother and do the duty of a husband's brother with her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be for him. And so it was that if he came to his brother's wife, that he would spoil on the ground to prevent giving offspring to his brother. But it was evil in the eyes of Yahweh what he did, and he also put him to death. And so Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Dwell as a widow in the house of your father until Sheila, my son, has grown up. For he said to himself, lest he also dies like his brothers. And Tamar went and she dwelled in the house of her father. All right, what do you feel like we should uh, note out of that? One of the standout things is just sort of to ask the question, given where we left off in chapter 37, why why the change in direction on this story that that, uh, we, we... 37 ended off saying, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam. So there's a bit of a, a um, you know, where, whereas Joseph is taken away down to Egypt against his own will, here is Judah freely of his own will going away from his brothers too. It's a bit of a detour and it leaves you asking the question the whole way along. Yeah, why why the interruption in the story, especially given that chapter 39 will start with now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. So very neatly transitioned. And it just tells you that there's it's got to be there for a reason. Yes. Um, so again, it's just that that normal rule in exegesis context. Where What is the setting of this? What have we moved past? What are we about to move into? 
and could there be a thematic connection? So those are things to, to watch out for. Um, what else do you think we should uh, uh, notice? I think one of the things about the story, you kind of you you look at Tamar here and go, gosh, she hasn't she hasn't had it good here, has she? So mm-hmm. her first husband has died. Um, the the right thing is then for the um, the sibling to to marry her um, and own, and then does that. He's very conscious here of well, I don't, I don't want to give this woman a child because it's not going to be my child. Mm. It will bear my brother's name. Mm. Uh, so does that. And so first son is is struck down because of the evil. It kind of says does. as well that there's some issue between the brothers too, isn't yep. it? Again. Yep. <laughs> second, second one, that's it. And then you kind of think it starts off okay. You're like, oh, well, you know, Tamar, you're just going to have to wait until the youngest brother grows up a little bit. Mm. But then it's that, again, it, you just notice in the details of, you know, what is it that Judas says to himself, well, lest he also dies like his brothers. It's almost like he's got, mm, maybe there's something wrong with this Tamar that all her... Mm. That's um, it. It's, it's like Tamar is the problem and third times, like we're, we're told, no, your boys did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord and he struck them, he executed them. Mm. Um, and there is a sense in that word that it is a judicial execution. Mm. God sentenced them to death and enacted it. So that's why they actually died and yet he's blaming he, he's suspicious that Tamar's kind of bad luck, mm. I guess you could say. And so um, it, it's a pretty it's a pretty rough thing and she's got to go live as a widow for a while. I mean, we don't, must remember, these. this is a very different cultural context mm. to ours and a number of these things like, you know, well, you've got to marry your brother's wife. We don't do that sort of stuff. We just need to own that this is a, a different age with different customs. Yeah, but I mean, and really the impact of that because the impact for her as a young woman uh, mm. that is widowed with no children is actually that she has nothing mm. um, because her any income that she'd have, any prosperity was actually tied to the marriage that she was in. And there is a sense as well as, as to why um, – to, to how Onan's sin was so sinful is because the, the idea of the, the name of, of the inheritance gets tied to the name of the son mm. and, and, and this happens later on as well. And so that family line is not to be wiped out. It's to be perpetuated. And so that's why that custom is there. And it's also interesting, I mean, Judah goes to goes and meets the daughter of a Canaanite man as well. Straight away, there's a little signal at the yeah, start of the narrative of that you know, oh, we're dealing with Canaanites again. And Genesis has had this theme that you know both Abraham and Isaac warned their sons not to go and take wives mm. from the Canaanites. So it just puts a little bit of a, a taint on Judah at the beginning of the episode. Judah seems totally at home in Canaan. Mm. His best buddy is a guy down from Canaan. He marries a Canaanite wife. Um, and, and so on, and and his hus- and his sons are, are do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Mm. It's like he's very much a, a Canaanite, mm. um, not you know uh, an Israelite, I guess you could say. And so that that's a that's a bit a bit telling as well. Two other striking things are one that the immediacy of God's judgment as mm. well in this episode that yeah. He strikes down the sons. Um, you know, if we went back a chapter, that doesn't happen. Uh, and the other thing is it's a two-paced chapter as well. That We just read the first 11 verses and we're spanning a very long period mm. of time, um, uh, whereas it's going to suddenly slow down from verse 12 onwards to just covering inside one year. Yep. And that's, again, one of the things that we talk about as we're reading the text. You notice those differences because when you slow down, that means that there is detail that we're meant to pick up. So, Dave, do you want to keep going? I'll keep going. 
Now the days grew many, and the daughter of Shua, wife of Judah, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to those shearing his sheep, he and Hira, his friend the Adullamite, to Timnah. Now it was disclosed to Tamar, saying, Behold, your father-in-law goes up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she put off the garments of her widowhood from upon her, and she covered with the veil, and she wrapped herself up and sat in the entrance of Enaim, which was on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up, but she had not been given to him for a wife. And Judah saw her, and he considered her a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned towards her at the road and said, Come now, let me come to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me for coming to me? And he said, I will surely send a young goat from the flock. She said, If you give to me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What is the pledge which I will give to you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff which is in your hand. And he gave it to her, and he came to her, and she conceived for him. And she got up, and she left, and she took off her veil from upon her, and she wore the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat in the hand of his friend, the Adullamite, to retrieve the pledge from the hand of the woman, but he could not find her. And the men asked about her place, saying, Where is she, the shrine prostitute in Anaim on the roadside? But they said, There's been no shrine prostitute in this place. And he went back to Judah and said, Couldn't find her. But also the men of the place said, There has been no shrine prostitute in this place. And Judah said, Let her keep it, lest we be held in contempt. Behold, I sent this young goat, and you didn't find her. All right, let's pause there. All right, what do you think is... uh, it's helpful to see there. I mean, one thing I noticed was the, the, the batting around of the, he said, she said, he said, she said, he said, she said. Um, and okay, all right. This go, go Hebrew nerd on go it. He- I'll go Hebrew nerd on it. So her name is Tamar, but now she's got a veiled face and she's in incognito, right? Um, but we can't forget that she's Tamar because the Hebrew word for she said is Tomer. So... Um, and so we get this repeated, and Tomer, and Tomer, and Tomer, and Tomer. So even though we, we she's Tamar is not there; it's the prostitute. Mm-hmm. But there's Tamar, Tomer, Tamar, Tomer, Tamar, and so you get this play on words that means that you never lose sight of who she really is. Mm-hmm. And I think, and this is something I've, I'm postulating, right? Um, that there is this sense where you know we talked about Dinah um, being voiceless. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at Look at um, uh, Judah's um, Canaanite wife, and she's nameless. She's mm. just the daughter of Shua. Um, but Tamar is not voiceless. She keeps speaking. And, uh, and that will come up um, in the last section that we read as well. And so there is something where perhaps um, voices that have been silent for a large part now get to cry out quite loudly in this passage. And so that's just a bit of a, a thing to think through. It's something you don't necessarily see um, just reading the English, but there is a, a definite pun and play on words and the repeated Tamar, Tomar, Tamar, Tomar um, words, which is deliberate. 
And yep. it's a different, it's a contrast between whereas chapter 34 ended on a note of, you know, they treated our sister like a prostitute. Here mm. there's, there's, there's a similarity in the prostitute theme and yet at the same time in that chapter, Dinah's not the focus. Dinah's just mm. a provocation for what happens in the family, whereas here Tamar very much takes front and centre mm. alongside Judah as, yep. a con- as a comparison. Yeah. And really, and Judah does not come out of this narrative looking favourably mm. at all. And so there is kind of the the conflicting thing of sort of what is Tamar actually doing here? Uh, but one of the things is is that she has actually been denied uh, her right. Um, mm. So by him um, denying her access to the younger son and leaving her alone, um, she has been oppressed by him and then this is her taking action um, to actually ensure that what Judah does is then to care for her the way that she should be cared for. And you think about this is years and years since um, Onan died Mm. and she has um, been wearing the robes of widowhood, which we keep getting reminded of because she takes off the robes Mm. of uh, widowhood, puts on prostitute garb, then puts back on the robes of Mm. widowhood. So you're you're never allowed to forget the fact that you know, potentially a decade later, she's still living as a widow in her father's house when this is not what was mm-hmm. what was promised, and so that's a, that's a pretty uh, significant thing as well. And you, again, this idea of Judah, who is seems to be very comfortable almost as a Canaanite, it comes out because now, uh, in the language of uh, certainly his Canaanite friend, he's been visiting a shrine prostitute, mm-hmm. so so a cultic prostitute. Um, in worship of foreign gods, so so it's it's it it doesn't make him look good, and the fact that he's concerned that if he doesn't that he doesn't want to be accused of not having paid the prostitute, lest lest you know um, he be held in contempt. Well, um, I was going to say that I'm ship sorry, sailed, Judah. Yeah, I, I was going to say, Judah, you are not looking honourable at this point. And it only gets worse. Um, what what else is there? Do you think that we Which, should spot here? And just keeping uh, like keeping the Abraham promises in view as well. The offspring. I mean, both what Judah's concerned about is, oh, I don't want to lose my third son. Uh, so mm. that that stops him. That's the reason why he withdraws his son from from Tamar. Um, but then at the same time, you're left with the dilemma of, well, how's Judah, what will the continuation of Judah's mm. line look like? Mm. And, um, and by the end of the episode, the surprising thing is that Tamar of all unlikely people is the one through which God will bring about a continuation to the line. Mm. And well, in that little exchange, you got that bit where it says, he gives to her. He then comes to her, and then we're told that she gives to him a mm. child. Mm. Yeah. So that's that 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 is he's given a child through through mm. Tamar, and it's interesting. Should we make anything of what the deposit was? Well, you know, your seal, your cord, and your staff. Um, Sounding very royal. Yes. Sounding very royal. And who's this? Is Judah, right? Judah. Mm. Mm. Gonna yeah. I wonder if that'll come up again. Yeah. Mm. I mean. At, at, <laughs> I was going to say, at, at what point are we allowed to go there? Um, so one of the things that I love about Matthew's genealogy, I think people often look at the genealogies and go, oh, my goodness, like they begat, 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 like, okay, we Let's get Let's move on to the story, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, but when you look at the people who are included in it, and in Matthew in particular, there are five women that are included and Tamar is one of them. Tamar is one of them and in the 
In the lineage of Jesus. Yep. Yeah. And and they're all really unlikely women. If you if you'd like an interesting assignment in the next week, read uh, the genealogy in Matthew, have a look at the women who are included and see if you can work out why some of them are probably the most unlikely women you would ever think would be included in uh yeah, the lineage of our King Jesus. And a little word on words. There's two words for prostitute here. She's called a prostitute initially and then gets the shrine prostitute one. And the word for shrine prostitute has the idea of holiness as part of the word. It Basically, it's a holy woman, in a mm. sense, a, uh, a, a sacred woman for holy purposes. And what we're actually going to see a little bit is that that's, that is actually true mm. of Tamar. She actually is holy and, mm. as we're going to find out in a minute, righteous. And there's a little bit of a tie in between, I mean, thinking about how does this thread between 37, 38 and 39. Mm. Um, you have the the both, I mean, between Joseph, the Joseph episode we heard about on Sunday, what did they do? They tore the robe that was at the heart of what they were jealous and envious of. So you have a garment and then you... Uh, also have the blood that the robe was dipped in blood and and here you have the nu- blood of a goat and here you have another goat is the gift so there's mm. there's some literally literary ties between these chapters as so well so they 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 meant they're meant to be there yes they're meant yeah. to be there and it's also thinking about well yeah why why interrupt the joseph story as well is the other key question mm. and I, I think we're we're um getting to know Judah a little bit, mm. who's going to become quite, he, he's going to be the leader of the brothers and, mm. and uh, both both in what happens in Egypt and ne- negotiations, but also at the end with the blessing mm. that comes from Jacob. Yeah. So he's a character that needs to be developed. Yeah, yeah, and I think that is the thing because so much of this section of Genesis is actually about Joseph mm. and he is key to the way that God is going to bring about his promises, but the one through whom... Uh, the promises to Abraham are going to be realised is Judah. Is is through the line of Judah? Yeah, that that's that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. I sort of swallowed something the wrong way. So so there there is um, uh, it creates a bit of suspense as well, doesn't it? I mean, you're 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 kind of left hanging on where Joseph mm-hmm. Joseph's been taken off to Egypt, and here we find out pretty much over a twenty year period or so, because you think about it. Judah, uh, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. Well, mm. it's going to take you know it's one or two time. decades. Yeah. And during that time, when we f- when we switch over to the Joseph narrative, we're going to see it takes eighteen years or so of Joseph in starting in Potiphar's household, but then spending all of those all of that time in prison in mm. a pit. Yeah. Um, so as Genesis readers, Judah has been introduced to us. We met him in the last chapter. Mm when he was the one who, along with Reuben, came up with some kind of strategy so that um, Joseph wouldn't actually be left for dead mm. in the um, in the cell. Then he goes and does this. And so the question for you as listeners is to go, how does the story of Judah develop? Mm. What's he, what, when does he turn up again and what has he learned? How has he grown? Which takes us back to the question mm. that was asked earlier about Judah. Mm. Um, so remember that we we asked the question: Is there anything uh, that redemptive? Was there, is there yeah. anything redemptive about Judah? In not the rest of the brothers wanted to kill Joseph. Judah is like, well, let's sell him to slavery instead. Mm. Um, and so, and you're ha- kind of going, it's sort of. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's the, not great. The fact <laughs> that it's, yeah, it's, he stopped Joseph getting killed, so yeah. that, that's mm. good. The story, yeah. <laughs> the story, the planned brother who will be 
become the saviour of the family is able to continue. Mm. And yet the reason that he gives, the narrator gives us the reason mm. for why he doesn't want to just kill Joseph and that is that he wants to... What gain, gain is there? What gain yeah. is there for us if we do that? So it doesn't look great for Judah at the beginning. And I think the only... He's got room to move, doesn't he? Yes. And I think that <laughs> the point where he starts to, we see some kind of... Uh, development in transformation is actually with Tamar when he has that realisation moment where he says, she is more righteous than I. There's well, why don't we get on and, mm. and hear that bit because yep. I think this is the, the wind-up part to the story. So what happens next? And it came to pass after three months and it was reported to Judah saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been a harlot and also, behold, is pregnant on account of harlotry. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Nice guy. She was brought out and she sent to her father-in-law saying, To the man which these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Now, do you recognize to whom are these, the signet ring and the cord and the staff? And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than me because I did not give to Sheila my son. And he did not add again to know her. Notice the pun there on the Joseph word, which means he didn't sleep with her again. And it came to pass in time that she gave birth and behold, twins were in her belly. And it was when she was giving birth and he stretched out, one of the twins stretched out his hand and she took the one being born and tied upon his hand scarlet, saying, this one came out first. But it came to pass as he returned his hand and behold, his brother came out. And she said, oh, what is the manner of your breaking out? And his name was called Perez. And after this, the brother came out who had been who upon whose hand had tied the scarlet, and his name was called Sarah. So that's a kind of conclusion of the story, and it's it's has a very brutal beginning, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's dripping with irony there, isn't it? The whole you know you get you get Judah, and you know Judah hears about you know oh my goodness, this is absolutely atrocious that my daughter you know my widowed daughter-in-law is you know it's been a prostitute and is pregnant and you're kind of sitting there going there do you not remember that we've just read that <laughs> you were the one that went and visited a prostitute mm. so he's judging her for something that he felt quite free to do mm. yeah which is which is horribly hypocritical mm. And yet it's got that kind of early echo if you think forward to um, the day of the Bathsheba incident where Nathan comes and confronts David. There's that kind of moment where David's you're filled with indignation um, and, and yet the penny's about to drop in terms of for himself. Yes, yeah. and you get a, a, another connection with the preceding narrative in chapter 37 where, where there's a, the presentation of of personal items to someone mm. Mm. and the question is asked, do you recognise who mm. these are? So it was it was Jacob being deceived by the presentation of the robe and saying, do you know who these are? Would these belong mm. to your son? Well, now she's doing the same thing to Judah, which of course is what Judah did mm. you know, a, along with his brothers mm. to his father. And now, but she, hers isn't a fake. It isn't a lie. Mm. It is a very clear truth. And the yep. one thing you can say about Judah is that he recognises it. Mm. Mm. Yep. And upon recognising it, he then, he recognises that there was, that, you know, Tamar is the one that is more righteous than he is. Mm. Um, that in, while she is an unmarried woman who is now pregnant, that she is the one who is righteous in this situation. Mm. That she, she is not mm. the one that is in the wrong here. 
and he owns it very much that he was. Mm. And uh, and and isn't it amazing then that that this is the ancestor of Jesus mm. is is both Judah but also um, the son. Um, born out of this union. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? And it's a little bit of the backdrop as well for Joseph. There's going to be a bit of a contrast as we meet another foreign woman and another episode of temp, you know, of sexual, what ends up being sexual morality where, mm. where, where Joseph isn't actually going to be tempted by Potiphar's wife. Um, and so there's a little bit of a setup as well of a contrast between Judah and Joseph. Yep. So that's where you see the book ending mm. really does something. So it, it, it looks backwards to the chapter. We can see tied in themes with chapter 37, but we also uh, see a very clear, you could easily have coupled this with next week's passage mm-hmm. because Judah, what what Ju- how Judah fails, Joseph again shows himself to, to be innocent. Mm. Yep, and then I was going to say, and then the other thing that we get in towards the end of the story is again we get another set of twins, mm. um, which you know you kind of go there again twins, and I think it was you that turned around and said, well, they do tend to run in families. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. But you kind of get this whole thing of well, there there are these two, and you know you can't help but think back to. Jacob and Esau and kind of go, what is this? And you get this similar kind of thing of you, you know, you get one kind of, I, I don't quite want to think about how this works, but, you know, one sticking his hand out and kind of getting the... The grasping, it's it's very, very yep. echoing of Jacob and yep. Esau. And, it? you know, having the, the scarlet the cord, cord. Mm. but then comes back in and it is then actually, but it is the other son who is actually going to be the foot the firstborn, and it's the other son who is actually the one through whom the promises are going to be fulfilled. It just happens again and again and again. It just picks up that whole kind of younger son motif, you know, that's been, you know, it's uh, Jacob, not Esau, and then just before this we've had Joseph's oh, Isaac, dream. Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac, not Ishmael. Joseph has this dream that his his older brothers are going to bow down to him, mm. and here again it's Perez is going to be the one through whom David and then the son of David will come. Mm. So there we go. There's the side stories that are not so side stories but are actually important um uh, pieces in the whole Genesis story, both looking at the passage of sin through the ripples of sin and the ripples of promise um, through the book of Genesis. So um, I've been Dave. I've been Seb. And I've been Mandy. Join us again uh, next week as we continue our journey through Genesis. Uh, we'll be looking at chapters 39 and 41 and some dreams. Some dreams.